0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Good morning. I'm James. Um, I'm getting over a head cold, so wouldn't you know... Just as soon as we all going to take our masks off, <laughs> I get sick. So um, I, I think we'll be fine, though. We'll get through today. I've been trying to keep my distance from people, and I'll, I'll keep my mask on when I'm not preaching. And, and then I pity anyone who has to take this microphone after me today, because they're probably going to have a cold this week. Um, one of the nice things about having a cold for me is I can sing the lower notes, uh, I had this memory of uh, my first day of choir in high school. I did choir all four years in high school. I loved I loved singing, but uh, the teachers taking attendance and different guys would would answer, you know, here when their name is called, they'd be like, here, and he'd be like, oh, there's a bass, that's great. And then they got to me and I'm like, here? And he's like, oh, you're a tenor. And I've been self-conscious of how high my voice is ever since. Um, today we're going to be, Uh, We're kind of running the last leg of our race through the book of Judges. Um, This is a book that throughout the series we've learned is really telling two stories. Uh, One of the stories that it is telling is through the judges that God raises up to deliver his people. And through these deliverers, God is is telling the story. He's foreshadowing the story of of the capital D Deliverer, the, the one who would come and save his people once and for all deliver them from oppression once and for all, and this deliverer who would come and establish a kingdom that would last forever. And so that's one story that's being told through the book of Judges. And the other story that's being told through the book of Judges is a story of the people. It's a story of how quickly people can forget God. It's a story of how easily people are, are led astray. It's a story of how corrupted people can become how far the people of God have fallen. It's a story of the true oppressors of Israel. And we've learned throughout this book, the, the biggest threat to Israel, the biggest oppressor of Israel has turned out to be Israel. And this story is about the people, and this story is about us because we are people. We're all human beings here. And so this story is the authors of these stories intended for the audience to hear the stories and to engage in self-reflection, to hear the stories of the failures of God's people and to reflect on their own fallenness, to see in the vices and the corruption of the people here in these stories to see their own their own trouble, their own sin. This revelation is meant to bring us to a place where we are crying out to God for mercy, crying out to God for this promised deliverer who can come and save us from the true oppressor. As the book of Judges has progressed, as we've been walking through it, those of you who have been with us on this journey, you know that as the story progresses, there are fewer and fewer versions of the first story being told. There are fewer and fewer deliverers coming on who are an effective sign pointing us to the true deliverer Jesus Christ and on the other side there are more and more stories of corruption of fallenness of of a desperate need for this deliverer and it's like the message is increasing throughout the book of Judges God's people need a true deliverer these these other deliverers are not enough God's people are not truly free they need a true deliverer to save them from themselves Now, it's really appropriate that we're in a time of studying these stories of human fallenness during the Lent season of the Christian calendar. The 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter morning are meant to be a time for us to reflect on the fallenness of humanity, on the common fallenness that all of us share as human beings. This is a season where we're encouraged to reflect on humanity's fallenness, and when we see fallenness in the people around us, we're encouraged to remember that we are connected to that, that we too are fallen, especially during Lent when we see the vices in people around us. We're supposed to be reflecting on our own problems. This is a season where we do not throw stones during Lent season because we know that each one of us lives in a house of glass. So we're going to be doing Judges chapter 19 and 20 today. Um, as you're turning to the passages, I want to just warn you ahead of time. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this, um, partly because it's two whole chapters and we'll, we'll never get through it before lunch if we, we're going to walk through it verse by verse, but also because there are details in this story that are, um, that are full of just disturbing content. And so we'll paraphrase it. This will be... Uh, a PG version of it, I think. We might drift a little bit into PG-13, but you've been warned. So, um, so chapter 19 begins with a story of a Levite and his concubine. Now, concubines back in the day, they they were like lesser wives. Um, they were they were people who were bound to uh, their their husband or their master, depending on. Which language you're leaning into? There, they're bound by kind of this agreement, this covenant, but they're less than uh, a a first wife. They might be a second wife. They might be uh, a slave who was a kind of wife slave who was there to produce children because the first wife was barren. Uh, they're, they're, They're somewhat removed from what we would think of as a wife, and yet they're also removed from what we would think of as a slave. And so. Think of it as a second wife, if you will. Obviously, at this point, we're talking about something that's very far removed from our culture, like my the lesser wives. I mean, I don't know. I suppose there's probably TV shows about things that, that would lean into this, but um, anyhow. So in chapter 19, we've got a Levite. We've got his, his lesser wife, the concubine, and his concubine leaves him after a period of time and goes back to her father's house. Uh, and we're not exactly sure why, but she's left him. And so... What happens after four months, the Levite is missing his concubine, and so he travels across the, the land of Israel to uh, the city of Bethlehem where his wife is now, or his concubine is staying with her father, and he goes to his in-law's house, and he's, try, he's, he's got his mindset, I'm going to persuade her to come home. Some translations say the Hebrew there is, is he's going to sweet talk her into coming home, so Maybe he was in the doghouse, and he's traveling across the land to get out of the doghouse. Uh, So he gets to his in-law's house, and his father-in-law is really hospitable. And and it almost seems like the father-in-law is just trying to get him to stay here. Just stay here and and stay with us. Uh, Each day when the Levite gets up and he's ready to leave with his wife and his servant, uh, the father-in-law is like, nah, stay a little longer and eat another meal, and convinces him to stay the night. Uh, After a period of time, though, the Levite is like, nope. I really need to get back to my home, the hill country of Ephraim. I need to get back there. So he takes his his concubine and he takes his servant, and they begin to travel home. Uh, It gets close to being nighttime. They're coming upon the city of Jerusalem that at this time is inhabited by the Jebusites, who are, the important part you should know, are not Israelites. And they get to Jerusalem, and the Levite servant is saying to him, well, we should stay here in Jerusalem. This is a great place to stop. But the Levite is afraid of the people in Jerusalem because they're not Israelites. And he says, we need to move on to a town that has my own people in it, that's inhabited by the Israelites. At this point, the Levite is operating under a couple of assumptions. One, he's got the assumption that he knows best. You know, he, he knows better than his father-in-law, who's like, you should just stay here and hang out with me. Maybe your marriage will work out better if you've got a family around you to support you. And he knows better than a servant who's like, we should stay in Jerusalem. He's convinced that he knows best. This is the part of the story that I think is meant to challenge us a little bit in those moments when we're not listening to people around us who have input into our lives. Remember, this story is supposed to make us reflect on ourselves. How many moments do you find yourself walking through life just sure that you know best? And it doesn't matter what the people around you who care about you are saying, you're convinced that you know better. The other assumption that he's operating under is that his own people, the Israelites, are going to be uh, more moral. They're going to be more hospitable. It's going to be a safer place to stay than than in Jerusalem. Those Jebusites in Jerusalem are dangerous, but the Israelites in whatever village I could come upon, these Israelites are going to be a safe place for me. the assumption that his people are better than the outsiders. Now, this story is meant to challenge people who would make those assumptions. And we begin to walk forward through the details of the story, you're going to see very quickly that my people or the people of God are not the safe people to be around. Eventually, they move on from Jerusalem. They arrive in a city called Gabeah. and this town is occupied by people who are from the tribe of Benjamin, so one of the other tribes of Israel, and. And they go to the town square, and nobody will take them in. And here right away, we're like, wait, what? What's going on here? His own people wouldn't take him in? In those days, it was common for, in these villages, if strangers are coming through town, you would be hospitable, and you would invite them into your house. You would care for them. In fact, there was parts of God's law when he delivered it to Moses that commanded the people of Israel to care for the strangers who would come into their land. Um, but nobody invites this Levite and his concubine and his servant in. We're seeing a little bit of foreshadowing here. The, the Levite thought things were going to be better in Gabeah, but in fact, they are not. Eventually, an old man comes in from working in his field, and he's actually originally from the same area, the hill country of Ephraim. He's from the same area as the Levite, and he, he sees him there, and, and he says to them, what's, what's going on? No one would take you in? And he invites them to come and stay with him for the night. And so the Levite and his concubine and and his uh, servant go to the old man's house. They're staying at the old man's house. And in verse 22, it says, Then some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. They were pounding on the door, and they shouted to the old man who owned the house. And they said, Bring out the man who came into your house so that we can have sex with him. Now at this point, if you're an Israelite hearing this story, if you're one of the people of God who's familiar with the, the scriptures and who's familiar with the story of the people of God, what story are you reminded of? Surrounding the house, demanding that someone comes out so that they can be abused, what story does this sound like? Anybody got it? Sodom and Gomorrah. Very good. If you you didn't know that answer, it's totally fine. In fact, if you didn't know the answer, I'm sorry that I put you on the spot. Because at this moment, you're probably feeling a little insecure in your Christianity, just like I was feeling insecure about my voice after he said I was a tenor. Um, One of the things we have to remember, though, is that these stories, this book that we have, the Bible, was compiled by people who memorized it. And so if you were a part of the people of God, you were familiar with these stories. And one of the benefits of being familiar with the story is that you're able to start connecting the dots, to know what the bigger story is that God is telling. God is not just telling a story in this chapter of Judges about a Levite and his concubine and the trouble that they find in the city of Gibeah. He's telling a larger story about the fallenness of humanity. He weaves these stories together and these details together. And any time that a story sounds like something else, in your mind you're meant to insert that story into the larger narrative of Scripture. Genesis chapter 19, we have this wicked twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these were known as the most wicked and sinful cities in the history of the world. These places were so bad that God had to wipe them out with fire from heaven. And when angels came to visit one of God's people, Lot, in that city, the men of Sodom surrounded the city and made similar demands of Lot, that he turn over his guests to them. So if you're reading down a level beyond just the details of a Levite in Gabeah, what is the story that's being told? The story is about how far Israel has fallen. Here in the land of Israel we have a city who is treating their guests similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here in the land of Israel, we have a city amongst God's people that is as bad as the worst cities that ever existed. What's the story that's being told here? Oh my, how God's people have fallen. Just like Lot had offered his daughters to the men of Sodom back in Genesis 19, the occupants inside the house of, of, in Gabeah offer the daughter of the old man and the, Levite, the Levite's concubine to the people outside. Just like in Sodom, the men outside refuse this offer. But then unlike the city of Sodom, where God's angels struck the men outside blind and rescued Lot and his family... On this day, in the land of Israel, no deliverance comes for God's people. What does this say about the land of Israel? That God is less present there to deliver and save than he was even in Sodom and Gomorrah. This story is about a night of tragedy for a Levite and his concubine, but the bigger story is about Israel hitting rock bottom. This is rock bottom. So the Levite, despite the earlier details in the story that he was determined to go and win his concubine back, this seems like a woman he really wants in his life, the Levite just ends up sending the woman outside the door to the people. (laughs) It's terrible. What kind of a husband throws his wife out the door to this kind of trouble? What kind of a man would do something like this? Throw his wife under the bus the minute the trouble comes. Wait a minute, this is a familiar story as well. In the beginning of Genesis, we have a story of Adam and Eve falling. They're hiding in the bushes when they hear the sound of God coming after they've sinned. They're terrified that God's going to do something to them. And in the face of this trouble, what does Adam do when he's confronted by God? He throws Eve under the bus, says it's all her fault, kicks her out the door. God, here's the person you need to deal with. Again, pay attention to the bigger story that's being told. Adam is connected to this story. It's a story of how deep sin cuts in our relationships. It's a story of the impact that sin has on us, where we find ourselves turning over to trouble, the very ones who God has put us in their lives to protect. It's a story of how sin can make enemies of even the most intimate relationships. The men outside, despite their initial refusal to accept the offer of a woman, the men outside spend the night abusing this poor woman. They turn her loose around dawn. She crawls back to the house, falls to the threshold of the door, and lays there until daylight. In chapter 19, verse 27, we read, When her master got up in the morning... Notice how the narrative shifts a little bit. He's now her master. He's not her husband. No husband would do what he just did to her. When her master got up in the morning... He opened the door of the house and he stepped out to continue on his way. There lay his concubine, fallen on the doorway of the house with her hand on the threshold. And so he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. This is almost unbelievable, right? The man turns his wife over to the hostile men of this city. He's not even there waiting for her safe return or making sure that she makes it back okay. And then he walks out the door in the morning And the narrative paints a picture of him. His mind is set on, I got to get on my way. I got to get back home. He's like, oh, that's right. I kicked my wife out last night. She's lying here. Hey, get up. It's time to go. He sees her laying there. He doesn't even realize she's dead. He's just like, let's get up and go. So he takes her body home. He ends up dismembering it, and he sends parts of her body all over Israel. The nation gathers at the sign of this terrible thing. The nation gathers together, and, and, he, and they're like, what is, what is the meaning of this? You've sent body parts all over Israel. What is going on? And he says to the nation that Gebeah surrounded me when I was staying there, and they wanted to kill me, and so they raped my concubine, and she died. Now, here he is giving his testimony before the nation of Israel. This is what happened. Is that exactly what happened? The city, the men of the city didn't surround him. It was certain evil men from the city surrounded him. They didn't want to kill him. They had other intentions for him. And they didn't do anything to his concubine until he threw her out the door. Well, he went inside, brushed his teeth, and got ready for bed. What has he done in this moment? With his testimony before the council, with his testimony before all the nations, the tribes of Israel gathered, the Levite has completely excused any of his guilt in this. Instead of, in that moment, saying and owning his failures as a husband to care for and protect his wife, instead of acknowledging his failures to listen to his servant to maybe stay in a different city, instead of of thinking to himself, I should have just stayed with my father-in-law. This is what I did. I got us into a real pickle. Then I threw her out the door, and this terrible thing happened. He's like, it's all the Benjamites' fault. He says, I'm not guilty at all, but all the men of Gibeah are guilty. And there are guilty men there, to be sure. But his testimony seems to extend this guilt from just a few evil people to an entire male population of a city. The council of the tribes decide that they are going to go and get vengeance on the city of Gibeah. The tribe of Benjamin isn't so quick to turn these men over, to turn this city over to them. And so it ends up being that all of Israel goes, against, goes to war against the whole tribe of Benjamin. Things are escalating quickly. One detail to note in this story as you read it is that the nation of Israel doesn't inquire of the Lord about what they should do until they've already decided to go to war. So they've decided to go to war, and the first time they're mentioned inquiring of the Lord, they ask the Lord, which of us should go up first to strike Benjamin? Now, this is important because the people of God, even today, are people who see themselves as, you know, inquiring of the Lord from time to time, of making decisions with the wisdom of God on our side and asking him for guidance, and, and, you know, we really are people who want to do what he tells us. And yet, this is sort of like asking the Lord, which hand should I punch with first? You've already made the decision in your heart to go to war. I just want to justify it now by asking the Lord, which hand to punch with first? The Lord says, send Judah in there first. (laughs) Punch with that hand. (laughs) Divine guidance can be so hard to discern when our hearts are already committed to certain causes. I mean, any of us who have ever been in love with someone trying to ask the Lord if this is our person know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pretty rare that we have the presence of mind to hear the Lord say, no, that one's not right for you when you're completely infatuated. The people of God rush to judgment based on some incomplete truths. They commit themselves to vengeance, and what they end up doing is massacring the entire tribe Of Benjamin. They killed 25,000 fighting men. They sustained some heavy losses themselves. And and they killed 25,000 fighting men. And then, with no fighting men left in Benjamin, they begin to go throughout the territory of Benjamin, village by village, town by town, and they kill everyone. They burn the villages, they kill everyone, even the livestock. So, when they say everyone, we're meant to read everyone there, women, children, the elderly, the defenseless, the disabled, the livestock, the household pets. They burn it all to the ground, total annihilation, not just for the wicked men of the city, not just for the guilty parties, but for every innocent person caught In the crossfire, massacred by their own Israelite brothers and sisters. Brothers, the brothers are the ones doing this. The women in Israel are off the hook in this one, I suppose. This is the kind of justice that an appetite for vengeance delivers. This is the kind of solution that the sword can offer in these kinds of problems. This is the kind of justice that humans achieve when they play the role of judges. This is not the justice of God. This is not the kind of justice that delivers humanity from the tragedy of fallenness and restores them to reconciled relationship with God and one another. That justice is only achieved by grace. This justice, the justice of God is expressed every time that the rain falls and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. That justice discerns that evil is the true enemy, that the devil is the true enemy and not the people who have fallen into his deceit and his lies. When the judge of all the earth came, when Christ came, He established his kingdom, not by picking up a sword and killing everyone who wasn't in line with him, but he established his kingdom with a sacrifice. He taught us a new law of justice, one that wasn't built on an eye for an eye or a tooth for the tooth, the commandment of the Old Testament, but one that was built on the foundation of God's love. The calling that God had on the nation of Israel was to be a holy people, was to be people who were different than the people around them. They were set apart from the nations around them and they were meant to be an example of what was possible when humanity chose to live God's way in relationship with Him and submitted to Him rather than through the rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden. And if people chose to walk with God rather than rebel against Him, amazing things were possible. The tragedy of the book of Judges is that rather than walk the path of being different than the people around them, the nation of Israel chooses the common path for humanity. The paths of self-worship, the paths of idol worship, the paths of vengeance, the path of sin. They chose this common path and they end up looking just like the nations around them. Even worse at times, they end up looking as bad as places like Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to close today contrasting the human justice achieved in Judges 19 and 20 with the path that Jesus marks for his followers to walk. I'm going to read a couple of, a couple of verses from one of Jesus' sermons, one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to invite you just close your eyes and hear these words. As you're listening to them, don't pretend that, They're not hard to hear. Don't pretend that this doesn't go counter to maybe everything that you've been taught to value in this world, by this world. Jesus' version of justice is not based on judgment. It's founded on grace. It considers people not by what they're doing in the moment, but it considers them in the long view of fallen humanity and God's redemptive work. Jesus' path looks different than anything a human mind could ever come up with, I'm convinced, which is one reason why I'm convinced it's the right path. No human would ever dream this stuff up. Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Later on, he says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank In your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Christ said, Judge not, lest you be judged. I wonder if anyone made the connections when the people of Israel were being carried away by the Assyrians when their own villages were being burned to the ground and their own children and their own wives were being murdered or taken away into slavery. I wonder if anyone made the connection that we did this to the tribe of Benjamin. We're just getting what we've sown into the ground. We're just reaping the harvest of what we've done. I wonder if anyone in Judah made the connection when they were carried away by the Babylonians I wonder if anyone made the connection. We did this to the tribe of Benjamin. We went up first. We thought we were doing what the Lord told us to do. But it turns out we were just sowing seeds of violence. And God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. I'm going to pray and then we've got some discussion questions to try to apply this a little bit more to our lives. Lord, we just ask that your justice would roll down like the waters and your righteousness like a mighty river. Lord, we confess in this moment we are far from your heart when we look at our brothers, when we look at our sisters, when we look at the sinful people in the world around us, when we look at the people who we would say are outside of our group, we are far from your heart. Deliver us from our desire to judge them. Deliver us from our hunger for vengeance. Lord, we want to be your people. Wash away our desire for revenge. Wash away our sense of self-righteousness. Lord, Help us to remove the planks from our eyes so that we could see clearly and be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.